guys can have a seat and you can turn if you have your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. We'll start the last chapter today. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there are some under most of the seats on the tray under the seat. You can grab it, turn to Philippians 4. You can even take it with you when you leave. We'd love to have you take the Bible. So this morning we're going to talk about conflict resolution, which is funny because it's Thanksgiving week and we need to talk about this, don't we? One of my earliest memories as a child, I was three years old, and I remember distinctly laying on my parents' bed with my ear against my mom's pregnant abdomen, listening to the heartbeat of my not-yet-born brother. And I was incredibly excited about the thought of having a brother that I could play with, that I could do life with. I was so thrilled. I couldn't wait to meet him. But that feeling of of excitement did not last long. No sooner could he walk than conflict started. We started fighting like all brothers do. We fought over the remote control. We fought over who owned this toy. We fought over the fact that he kept following me all over the house. And so we fought all the time and that, that conflict always led to pain. It would start with words and it would turn into punches and then we'd get spankings and it always went badly for us, and yet we kept choosing to fight. And the sad thing is, is that that propensity towards conflict does not end when we become adults. We still struggle with it. Now, hopefully we're not punching and kicking quite as much these days, but we still struggle with conflicts in our lives, whether that's at home or at school or at work or among our neighbors. We fight, and the reason is because conflict is in our DNA. It's actually, it's interesting to see. What was the first recorded sin after the Garden of Eden? Was murder. Brother murdered brother. That goes all the way back. We've been fighting since the beginning. Conflict is in our DNA. We fight all the time, and it always leads to pain. Conflict brings heartbreak, and it brings stress, and it it brings death of relationships. Conflict is always painful. And this week, we've got to talk about conflict. Now, the ironic thing is I didn't set it up to be conflict resolution the Sunday before Thanksgiving, but God knew we need to talk about this because this is the week of greatest conflict in the year because you're about to go to the airport with a billion other people and there's going to be conflict there and there's going to be conflict on the roadways and there's going to be conflict at Best Buy on Friday morning and there's going to be conflict around the dinner table as you are just holding your breath and praying no one brings up politics but somebody's going to do it and then there's going to be conflict and if that wasn't enough we play LSU this week. So there's going to be conflict all over the place. We need to know how to deal with it. And so this morning, what I want us to do is talk for a little bit about conflict. And in particular, we're going to look at it from two angles. How do we reduce the frequency of conflict in our lives so that we're experiencing conflict less? And then second, when conflict does happen, how do we resolve that conflict effectively? Okay, so I'm going to give you some biblical principles for both of those. Now, let me be clear. I I can't come anywhere close to fully covering conflict resolution in 35 minutes. Whole books have been written about this subject, and I encourage you to get one. Now, if you were here when I taught on the subject of communication, especially communication in marriage, I mentioned these two books. I still think these are the two best books out there on the subject of conflict. If you have not read one of these, I encourage you to get one, and it might be useful to read on Thanksgiving 
Thanksgiving week or during the holidays. So you have a lasting promise, a Christian guide to fighting for your marriage. The great thing about that book is all the principles apply to every relationship, not just marriage, but at work, at school, with your roommates, with your parents, with your extended family. It just, it works everywhere. And then Crucial Conversations, Tools for Talking When Stakes Are High. That book is a bestseller actually in the business world, but again, it applies everywhere. Really practical tips for how to avoid conflict and then how to resolve it. So I'm pointing you to these books as as far more comprehensive teaching aids to walk you through this really important subject. All I can do this morning is give you a a little taste. I'm going to give you some principles from this particular passage in Philippians 4 to help you reduce and resolve conflicts in your life. So let's look at this passage. It's very short. It's chock full of theology, but it's only two verses. So look at Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 2. Paul says, I urge Yodia and I urge Sintiq to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, this this conflict between these two ladies, it's, it's clearly serious and it's been going on for a long time because it's, it's reached Paul all the way back in Rome, which that's months away from Philippi. And then it gets all the way from Rome back to Philippi for this to be worked on. So this is a serious conflict and Paul cares deeply about it. He says, I urge these two ladies to reconcile, literally in Greek, I beg them, please be reconciled. So it's a, a significant conflict. And in talking about this conflict, Paul isn't in these two verses giving us any new truths. These are all things that he's talked about all the way through the book of Philippians. He's simply applying all that you've already learned to this specific case of conflict. And I think in these two verses, even though it's a really very short passage, that there's, there's actually eight principles here that can help us when we, when we face conflict. I'm going to divide them in half. So I'm going to give you four biblical principles for reducing conflict and four for resolving conflict. And yes, I know eight, that's a lot for a Sunday morning, but I, I told Julie, well, that's what I do. I give you guys long lists. I was an engineer, so I'm going to give you a long list this morning of principles to apply in your life to reduce and resolve conflict. So let's start with the first half. Four principles to help you reduce the frequency of conflict in your life. These will help you avoid situations of conflict, whether that's in your marriage, your family, your extended family, neighbors, friends, coworkers, whoever it might be. So the first principle that I think we learn from this passage about reducing conflict in our lives is we need to anticipate attack. If you have walked with the Lord for decades and been faithful to him and served in the church and done amazing things in his name, you are still not immune to the temptation to fight, to the, to the temptation to fall into conflict. How do I know that? Because these women are incredibly mature. Notice what Paul says of them. They have been serving with him. They've shared his struggle in the cause of the gospel. These are godly Christian ladies who have served the church for years and years and yet still have fallen into conflict. And that's just a a warning to all of us. No matter how mature we are in Jesus, we can still fall into conflict at any time in our marriage, among our friends, wherever 
it might be. And, and furthermore, we need to recognize that, that in our relationships, there is an enemy who seeks to attack our love for one another. That's Satan. I don't know if you know this about Satan. We tend from Hollywood to think about him as this evil, awful, ugly creature who terrifies us. No, he's much more subtle than that. Satan wants to sneak in and he wants to destroy the relationships in your life. Why? Well, because Jesus said in John 13, the world will know that you follow Jesus. How? By your love for one another. It is love in our relationships for one another that is our primary witness to the world that Jesus is true. Satan does not want the world to know that Jesus is true. And so where is he going to attack? He's going to attack in your relationships. He is always coming for your marriage, for your family, for your friendships, for all of your relationships. And we need to know that so we can be on guard. And the primary way to be on guard is to pray. And maybe you're already doing this. If you're not, I highly encourage you to pray daily for God's protection upon your marriage, your family, your friendships, all of your relationships. Ask God, beg God to protect the relationships in your life from attack because Satan is coming after you. That's what he does. So pray that God will protect your relationships anticipate you're going to be attacked in this area. And like I said, especially this week. So go in ready. Go in praying every day for God's protection. Second principle that you get from the book of Philippians about reducing conflict is to adopt Jesus's attitude. And let me explain it. So if you, if you want to reduce the frequency of conflicts in your life, you need to think like Jesus thinks. You need to have the mindset of Jesus. It's interesting in verse 2, when Paul says that he urges these two ladies to, to live in harmony, that phrase live in harmony, it's a Greek word phroneo, it means mindset, and it's the same word that was back in chapter 2. So turn to the left, like one page, chapter 2, verse 5. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. Paul says, have this attitude, phroneo, that same word, living in harmony, in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. If you want to reduce conflict or reconcile when conflict happens, you need to have the same attitude or mindset about yourself, about life that Jesus did. And what was Jesus's attitude in life? Well, Paul tells you in the next few verses, look, starting in verse six, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus chose the path of sacrifice. He chose in this life to sacrifice, not his deity, but his rights as deity. He, he laid down his desires, his rights to serve us. And if we'll do the same, if that is our mindset in life, we're going to choose the path of humility, the path of self-sacrifice, then we will avoid so many of the conflicts that would otherwise arise in our lives. Uh, Paul talks about this from the opposite perspective in 1 Corinthians 6, kind of the negative perspective. Here's what he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it is already a defeat for you, and he's talking to the church in Corinth, that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. 
Paul says it's, it's better to be wronged than to be at war with one another. Now, let's be clear. This is not talking about a criminal case. This is not about violence or something like that. This is a civil case. And Paul's point is, if you want to reduce conflict in your life, you need to be willing, like Jesus, to let go of your rights, even when that costs you money and reputation. That's hard. You, you may have the legal right to sue another believer. Are you willing to let go of that right for the sake of harmony and love in your relationships? That's what Jesus would do and what he would call us to do, to be willing to choose a path of humility and sacrifice so that we can be in unity with one another. In the book of Proverbs, it tells us in chapter 19, good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory or honor to overlook an offense. A mark of maturity or honor is that you're willing to overlook an offense. Now, let's be clear. Again, we're not talking about some kind of criminal offense or self-destructive behavior. You have to address those things. We're not talking about really deep, long-standing hurts that you need to face. We're talking about the everyday things where we hurt each other. The, the everyday things where someone says something dumb because they were hungry or tired. That happens all the time in, in my household because I do that. And The wonderful thing now is Julie and I have been married for 15 years, and so she knows when I get hungry or I get tired, I'm liable to do something dumb, to say something dumb, to lose my temper, and and she's become very forgiving in that. Okay, I know that was not nice, what you did, but I know you just needed to eat or go to sleep. And that is a mark of maturity when you're willing to let an everyday offense like that go. To show one another grace. That, that is humility. That is sacrifice. Because you could demand justice in that moment. Are you willing instead to let it roll off your back and let it go? If you'll do that. If you'll overlook an offense. That's adopting the attitude of Jesus. And it will help you to be able to avoid so much conflict in your life. So practically speaking. What I would encourage you to do is to think this morning about whether or not maybe there is some offense that has been done to you in your life. It's it's not criminal. It's not super deep. It's just kind of an everyday offense that you've been holding on to. You've been thinking about it. You've been rehearsing it in your mind. You've, You've been holding it against the person who hurt you. You've been kind of nursing that wound. Maybe today is the day to let that go. To adopt the attitude of Jesus and say, you know what? I'm not going to demand justice. I'm going to let it go. I'm going to be willing to die to myself and let this go. That helps you reduce conflict in your life. Okay, third principle that we get from this passage about how to reduce conflict in our lives is to focus on the mission. Paul says in verse 3 of these, of these two ladies, they have shared my struggle in the cause of Christ. Paul is reminding her in the cause of the gospel. Paul's reminding them of the years that they spent serving with Paul in the mission of sharing the gospel, of, of getting the good news about Jesus to the world. He's reminding them that that's the mission ultimately that Jesus has given all of us. You might recall at the end of the book of 
Matthew. Jesus gives us a great commission, a, a great mission, if you will. That's to make disciples of all the nations, to share the love of Jesus in our deeds and in our words so that people could come to know and follow Jesus. That is our great mission in life. And if we will focus on that shared mission, it will help us avoid conflicts with one another. And easiest way to illustrate this, I don't know if you've ever either read the books or watched the series Band of Brothers. Guys, we tend to, to do that. We watch this Series And if you've watched Band of Brothers, you know um, it's about World War II. It's about Easy Company, part of the 101st Airborne that fought the Nazis in Europe. And if you watch the series, you'll see these guys in general, um, not the most gracious guys. <laughs> There's a lot of pretty hard personalities in that particular company of soldiers. And yet they ended up forming these unbelievably lifelong, deep friendships with one another. Why? Because there's not time to fight amongst yourselves when you're fighting the Nazis. They kept their eyes on this shared mission, this shared struggle, and it united them together even though they were hard personalities. That's exactly how it works in the church. We will find that our differences with one another get minimized and we end up drawing closer together if we're all working together to expose the world to the love of Jesus Christ. I've seen that in my own life. Julie and I started a, a charitable organization last year to give away cars to people in need. And it's been interesting to see people follow it on Facebook and social media because I, I have a lot of friends on Facebook by virtue of my job. And some of them are absolutely staunch conservative Republicans. And some of them are absolutely staunch liberal Democrats. And what's interesting is to see that there's a lot that divides. There's a lot that pushes apart. And yet, when we share a need about a family in our community, a single mom who can't get to work, who can't get her kids to school, who needs help, guess who donates? Both of them. Both of them come together and say, wow, I, I don't know what to do about politics, don't know what to do about immigration, but golly, here's a person who needs help. Let's show them the love of Jesus. We, we, can, we can show them practically, visibly, tangibly the love of Jesus. Let's do that together. Well, that's how it works. When we come together around the common mission of sharing Jesus' love in our words and our deeds, it unites people together that otherwise would not stand in the same room together. If you will focus your life on sharing Jesus with others in your words and your deeds, you will find that the number of conflicts in your life greatly diminishes. So I, I challenge you, is there some area in your life where you are looking for opportunities to share Jesus in word and deed? If not, that needs to change. That, that needs to be the center of your life. You need to be engaged in this mission that Jesus gave us to show the world his love. If you will do that, it will greatly reduce the frequency of conflict in your life. Okay, so that's the third principle we get from the book of Philippians on conflict. Now, number four. If you want to reduce the conflicts in your life, you need to hope in the next life. You may have noticed that Paul reminds these ladies at the end of verse 3 that their names are already written in God's book of life. The book of life is not mentioned often in Scripture. This is one of the few places. The book of life is God's record of everyone who has trusted in Jesus and thereby received eternal life. So it's a record of everybody who's believed that Jesus is their Savior. And will spend eternity in heaven with God the Father. 
So if you've trusted in Jesus, your name's already written in God's book of life. You are guaranteed heaven. There is no eraser for the book of life. If you have not yet trusted in Jesus, then your name can be written in the book of life today. Actually, that can change right now. God's always got the pen out. All that is required to have your name written in the book of life is just to recognize that getting to heaven isn't about what you do. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's about what Jesus did. He went to the cross and died for our sins after living a perfectly righteous life. And then he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. He did it all. And now he offers eternal life that he has earned as a free gift to you. All you have to do to receive eternal life and have your name written on the line is say to God, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. For living a perfect life, dying for my sins, rising from the dead so that I could have eternal life in heaven with you for free. Just say thank you. The moment that you say thank you, your name is written in the book. And what Paul's challenging us to do, if we want to reduce conflicts in our lives, then we need to live with this recognition. We need to, we need to believe that our best life is not this life. It's the next life. We need to fix our hope on the next life. We need to look forward to the next life. Why? Because if, if we're fixated on this life, if it's all about what we can have in this life, then we're going to end up competing with one another over the limited pleasures and possessions this life can offer. It actually comes up in the book of James. James talks about this in chapter 4. He says, "Is what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He's talking to, to Christians, to, to believers. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, and so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And his point is, the problem is your, your passions, your desires are focused on this life. And there are limited pleasures to go around in this life. And so you end up competing with one another to get what you can, get all you can in this life that leads to conflict. If you're fixated on living your best life now, it will lead to conflict. It's really easy to prove that because resources are limited in this world. There are X number of seats in Kyle Field. If you want a box seat in Kyle Field, the problem is you're competing with someone else. Who wants a box seat in Kyle Field? And if that is the greatest ambition of your life, then if you are not able to get that box seat, you're going to end up in conflict. Everything is limited in this world. Money is limited. Promotions are limited. Trips to Jamaica are limited. And so if all of your hope is fixated on this life, if you are living for what you can get now, you're going to end up in conflict with one another over the limited resources of this existence. What's the solution? You need to place your hope in the next life. You need to think about what will be provided in the next life because satisfaction is unlimited in heaven. There, there is not a limitation on the amount of satisfaction available in eternity. So you experiencing an eternity of absolute satisfaction in heaven will not in any way affect whether or not I do because God has infinite satisfaction to go around. And so if your hope is fixed on the next life and what you will have then then you won't be in conflict with other people over the limited resources of this life. Okay, so just very practically speaking. Now, it is hard to fix our hope in the next life. There is so much to want in this life. And so the best solution I know of is pray that God will help you to to fix your hope in the next life. And second, read books in Scripture, in the Bible, 
they're about the next life. And the two best I know of are Isaiah in the Old Testament and Revelation in the New Testament. They can be a little confusing, but they're pretty cool. So read those books. It will help you to see what God has in store for you in the next life. All right, so those are principles for how to reduce the frequency of conflict in your life. Now let's talk about four principles for resolving conflict when it does occur in your life. First principle for resolving conflict is to take the first step. And it's interesting if you look back at verse 2 of chapter 4. Paul uses very odd grammar in Greek here. Typically, you would say, I urge Yodia and Sintiq to live in harmony. That's the normal way. Instead, he repeats the verb. Once for each lady, I urge Yodia and I urge Sintiq. And that seems completely pointless. Actually, there's a really strong point there. Why does he repeat the verb? Because he's telling each lady, you are each responsible to take the first step towards reconciliation. But that's not what we tend to do, right? We tend to try to think back who started it. Who started? Well, they got to they gotta take the first step. Paul says, I don't care who started it. You both are responsible to take the first step. Julie and I are trying to teach that with our nine-year-old twins because we've noticed if they fight, which they do. I mean, they love each other, but all kids are going to fight. And so at some point they fight, and then it's time to make up. And, and then we want them to make up, but they both spend forever rehearsing the history of the conflict. All the way back, this and this and this and this and this. And the point of it is to show us that it was actually their sibling who started it. And so they don't need to take the first step. Julie and I are trying to help them understand. We don't care who started it. What we care about is that you each take the first step. Now that requires humility. You have to be willing to suck up your pride and say it doesn't matter whether the other person started this or not. I'm going to take the first step. I'm going to initiate reconciliation in this relationship. That's what God expects of us doesn't matter who started it. We're both going to take the first step towards one another. Okay, so that's the first principle. Both take the first step. That first step is ultimately about forgiveness. So I I find it interesting. You may have noticed. This is kind of a principle from silence. You may have noticed Paul doesn't spend any time rehearsing the details of the conflict. He doesn't tell us what one person did, doesn't tell us what the other person did, doesn't go through any of the history of this fight. Why? Because he is modeling for them what forgiveness looks like. A lot of people wonder, what exactly is forgiveness? Ultimately, it's it's letting go. That's what the Greek word means. You open your hand. So somebody does something wrong to you, it hurts, and your natural instinct is to hold it. Well, I'm going to hold on to what you just did. Now I'm going to hold it against you. I'm going to use it against you. I'm going to use it as reason to not like you. You hold on to that. Forgiveness is when you finally say, I'm done holding on to this. It hurts too much. I'm going to let it go. You let it go. And that's what Paul does. And he doesn't rehearse any of it because he wants these ladies to let it go. Let go of the offense. Don't rehearse it in your mind anymore. Don't play that, that movie in your mind of what was done to you. Let it go. And he wants them to, to let that offense Go And in most conflicts, since not all, but most conflicts, both parties are, are somehow involved in doing the wrong. So forgiveness means both asking forgiveness for what you've done and offering forgiveness for what the other person does. We're called to do that. Whether or not the other person reciprocates, we're called to offer forgiveness and ask for forgiveness in our lives. Now, I, I feel like I need to give a couple clarifications here that are really important. The first is, when we talk about forgiveness and, and God's desire for you to forgive, God knows that some hurts are really, really deep and will take a long time and a lot of help to be able to forgive. And that's okay. 
If you've been hurt incredibly deeply, like abuse-level hurt, violence-level hurt, betrayal-level hurt, I don't want you to hear me today saying, you need to forgive right now, like by the end of the morning. It doesn't work that way. What, what I would ask you to do is just ask God to begin to help you grow to a place where one day you can forgive. That's enough. Just say, God, please work in my life so that one day in the future, I will be at a place where I can truly forgive. Because God knows it's really hard to get there. And you may need help. You may need a, a counselor helping you work through this. Just pray that God will begin to move you towards a place of forgiveness. Don't feel guilt if you can't forgive today. That's, that's very understandable. Second thing to keep in mind by way of clarification, forgiveness is not the same thing as trust. I'm asked this a lot when I counsel people who are in conflict. God wants you to forgive, which means let go of that offense. He's not telling you you immediately need to trust that person. Again, a classic case. Let's say that you told a close friend a secret. You, you told them this secret about yourself because you wanted them to, to pray for you or to know or whatever, and then they blabbed it. Okay, well, God wants you to get to a place where you can forgive them to do, from doing that, but it, he's not asking you to tell them another secret. That would be foolish. No, you, they violated your trust. That's a different thing than forgiveness. Another example, if, if a woman is being abused physically by her husband, well, God wants her to get to a place where one day she can forgive him, but God isn't asking her to put herself back under her husband's abusive hand. No, no, no that's not what forgiveness means. Forgiveness and trust are different things. So we just have to be very clear about how we talk about this. What God wants is that you will move towards forgiveness, move towards a place where you can let go of that offense that was done to you. And, and forgiveness can be really hard, especially if the offense was really painful. And so how do you grow in your ability and willingness to forgive? For me, I turn to the book of Ephesians. In chapter 4, verse 32, where Paul says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. One of the things that I try to remind myself when I've been hurt is that I first hurt God. I try to remind myself that when God tells me to forgive, he is not asking me to do something that he has not already done. He did it first. God has forgiven me of all of my sin and all of my pride, even though that is what nailed his son to the cross. He went first in offering radical forgiveness to me. And that motivates me to forgive others. If, if I remember how much I have been forgiven by God, it helps me to be able then to offer forgiveness to someone else. And so this morning, if, if you look and you say, man, I know I need to forgive this person, but it is just really, really hard. I don't want to do it. My encouragement to you is just to pray. You, you don't have to like muster up the strength to forgive right now. I just want you to pray. I want you to ask God, God, please soften my heart. Begin to loosen my hand. Because you know, when, when you hold on to unforgiveness, who does it hurt most of all? You. You're holding on to poison. It'll destroy you. God wants you to loosen that grip. Pray, God, please loosen my grip on that offense. Please begin to work a miracle here so that I can let go of this. Please work in my life to help me see how much you've already forgiven me. Help me to see myself as already a recipient of radical forgiveness so that I can let go of this and offer forgiveness to this other person. Okay, so principle number two, choose forgiveness. Principle number three, get help when needed. Clearly help was needed in this case. 
And so Paul challenges a, a genuine yoke fellow or companion to step up and help these two ladies. Their fight's gone on for a long time. We don't know who he's talking about when he says true companion who's going to help patch up this relationship. Maybe an elder there in the church is going to help these ladies out. The point is Paul's saying sometimes a conflict has been going on for so long that you need somebody else to step in. You need a third party to come help you. And, and so what are the, the characteristics you're looking for in somebody who's going to help you out? You're looking for a, a mediator who is first a mature believer. Notice that Paul is challenging a, a true companion to step up. True companion in Greek, it, it means yoke fellow. It, it's the idea of an ox that's been tethered to another ox. It's somebody who's walked with Paul for years. You're looking for a mature believer who has walked faithfully with God for years. That's the kind of mediator that you want. That's the first thing. So a mature believer to step in and mediate. Second thing you're looking for, this is really important, you're looking for a mediator who is wise enough to listen to both sides before he or she reaches any conclusions. Incredibly important. It actually tells us directly about that in Proverbs 18. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him whole point is wisdom says, wait a minute, I'm not going to rush to conclusions from hearing your side. I'm going to go hear the other side. There's always two sides of everything. I'm going to listen to it all and then arrive at conclusions. Okay, so if, if you've been in conflict for a long time, whether it's in your marriage, in your family, with friends, with roommates, with a coworker, don't hesitate to ask for help. Find a mature believer who can come alongside of you. If you don't know anyone who can help you out, talk to, to one of us on staff. We can help you find somebody. Talk to an elder or a deacon or one of their wives. We can help connect you with somebody who can help you resolve that conflict. Fourth and final principle for how to resolve conflict is keep it private. One of the saddest things about this particular conflict between these two ladies is that we know about it. Like billions of people have read the Bible. And so for billions of people, the only thing we know about Yodia and Sintiq is that they were fighting. How sad is that? These, these were amazing women. They had served with Paul for years in the cause of the gospel. But because they let their conflict go public, this is what we know about them. The principle is that conflict always gets worse the more people know about it. Now, you've got to tell someone, you've got to tell a mediator, and again, if it's a criminal thing, you've got to go to the police, we're not talking about that, but in the everyday conflicts of life, when you keep it private, you make it so much easier to reconcile. When you tell lots of other people, then what's going to happen? Well, they're going to hear only your side, so they're going to rush to a conclusion, they're going to amplify the anger, lines are going to be drawn, and now we're trying to reconcile groups of people instead of just two people. The more people who know, the worse that it gets. You need to keep it private. That is essential. I think that's part of the reason James told us that the tongue is a fire. Our speech can light a forest on fire. That's what happens when you share a conflict. It sets a fire you can't put out. Keep it private. Just you, the other person, a mediator to help you out. Keep it private. All right, where I want to end today is with the actual most frequent question I am asked in my office from people in conflict. I've heard this over and over again over the years. Most popular question is, what if the other person won't reconcile? I'm in a fight. Maybe it's in my marriage. Maybe it's with my kids. Maybe it's with a friend, a roommate, a coworker. They won't pursue reconciliation. I want to reconcile. What do we do? Well, I always read Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
The point of that verse is simply to say all God requires of you is that you do your part. As much as it depends on you, try to live peacefully. So that means you're offering forgiveness. You're asking for forgiveness. You're keeping it private. You're, you're doing your part, but you can't control what the other person does. And so if you're in a conflict and you've done your part, you need to know you're not guilty in God's eyes. He's not angry at you. You can't control what the other person does. So take peace in that. The second thing that I'd like to point out is that even in this relationship where it seems hopeless because the other person doesn't want to reconcile, you've done everything you can do. Now it's time to pray and wait. It's time to pray and wait because as you pray and wait, God can actually do miraculous things in relationships that seem too far gone. And one of my favorite examples is a relationship actually in Paul's own life. He knew what conflict looked like. So Acts 15, he and Barnabas have a row. I mean, they go at it. It says, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. The, the Greek text, it just, it, it makes it sound too academic. Man, they are at it with each other. They're, they're fighting. Why? Because this young kid, John Mark, he'd gone with them on their first missionary journey. He got tired or homesick or whatever it was. We're not told why. He leaves. He gives up. And to Paul, that's game over. You don't get to go with us again. You gave up. Barnabas, though, was a lot more quick to forgive. And he says, let's give him a second chance. We need to take him. And Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, there's such a disagreement that they split. And this is the end of Paul and Barnabas working together. It's the end of, seems to be the end of Paul and John Mark working together. My favorite verse in this whole conflict, though, isn't in the book of Acts. It was written many years later. In the last book that Paul wrote, about three months before he died, he is in prison when he writes the book of 2 Timothy. He knows he's about to die, and here's what he says. 2 Timothy 4, get Mark. That's John Mark. And bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. What's the point? No relationship is ever past the hope of reconciliation. Why? Because you have a God who can do anything. And so over the years, and, and what's remarkable, we don't know how it happened. We, we don't get like a play-by-play, this, this, this. No, we just know that God worked over the years to bring such reconciliation to Paul and John Mark. That Here's the mind-blowing thing. It's not just that they're okay with each other. It's that they love each other. They're such close brothers that Paul is about to die. And he says, who do I want next to me? John Mark. They're closer than they had ever been before because that's what God can do. And so if you have a relationship in your life where there is conflict and you want to reconcile, the other person doesn't, it's just so many things that have happened, it just seems too far gone, I want you to choose to believe that no relationship is too far gone because we have a God who can heal anything. And so I encourage you to pray and then pray and then pray and then pray and patiently wait. Ask God to perform a miracle, to heal your relationship just like he healed this one, because God can do anything. Let's pray and ask God to do that in our own lives. Heavenly Father, we praise you, we thank you, that because you are the author of love and the creator of life, you can heal any relationship. We praise you, Heavenly Father, that you are a God who heals and restores and redeems that which was lost. We thank you that you are big enough and great enough to do that. 
But Lord, for that to happen, we know that we need to be humbled. We need you to work in our hearts to break us of our pride, to break us of our self-sufficiency. We pray, God, that you would open our eyes to our need for you, that you would help us to cling to you, to, to cry out to you. We pray, Lord, that you would soften our hearts and help us to be willing to forgive others like you have forgiven us. We pray, Lord God, that you would work miraculously in our lives, both to reduce the amount of conflict and to resolve conflicts that have been going on for a long time. We pray that you would bring healing. We pray that you would bring such radical, amazing healing to our lives, to our relationships, that the world would see that and would be amazed and would want to know who Jesus is by the love that's shown in us. We thank you that you are a good, good father who loves us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Walk in these truths this week. See you next week.